You're listening to the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship Church in Boyertown, Pennsylvania. You can find out more about us on the web at www.harvestfellowshipchurch.org. We pray that through our teaching, we may present everyone mature in Christ. Our reading this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. And we will begin at verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Hear now the holy, inspired, inerrant, and all-sufficient word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Lord, sanctify us in the truth for your word is truth. Blessed Lord Jesus, this morning we want to be like Mary, who was content to sit at your feet, who was content, O oh Lord, to hear your voice, listen to your words, who is not encumbered by the many things that were necessary to do, but rejoiced in the hearing of your word. Lord, your word is living and active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. Oh, Lord God, we long to hear your voice as we hear your word today. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, the late J.C. Ryle, beloved bishop of Liverpool, was a great servant of God who had a reputation of being an immovable man of granite with the heart of a child. He was quoted as saying this, In his word, God reveals his will, and by, his pr- and by prayer, we ask him to do it. Let me say that again. In his word, 
God reveals his will, and by prayer, we ask him to do it. And we think about that. We realize that the God of glory, the majestic creator of heaven and earth, has revealed his will. He has communicated his decrees and his desires to us by his spirit through his unchanging word. And he invites us. He invites us as those who believe his word to petition, to ask, to intercede in prayer that his will would be done. His will would be accomplished. You'll remember this in Matthew chapter 6 when the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. He answered them and saying, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Beloved, when our prayers are directed by the revealed will of God, we can pray with confidence that God will hear and God will respond to our petitions. Isn't this what the Apostle John told us in his first epistle? When he said, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, then we know that we have the request that we have asked of him because we've asked it according to his will. So you see that praying in accord with God's will provides the desired answers. This morning, as we continue our study in Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul points us to the same biblical pattern of praying in accord with the sovereign and gracious will of God, as we have already discovered in the first 14 verses, which I'm thankful we didn't read again this morning, but the first 14 verses of chapter 1, Paul praised God for revealing his will. And now, in verses 15 to 23, he intercedes on behalf of the Ephesians in accord with the revealed will of God that he already stated. Remember, in verses 4 through 5, Paul said that God the Father has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In verse 9, Paul said, and God made known to us the mystery of his will, that in the fullness of time he will unite all things together in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. And then in verse 11, Paul said, In him, that is, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So he has expressed to us what his will is. And now, well, now Paul is going to pray according to that will. 
before the worlds were formed. It was the will of God to display his majestic glory by choosing, by redeeming, and by adopting a people unto himself, a bride for his son who would share in his glory throughout all of eternity. And now, after revealing this will of God, Paul prays for the Ephesian believers. His desire is that they would be able to comprehend the manifold blessings that are theirs by virtue of their union with Christ. When Paul said, for this reason, he was actually reaching back, reflecting back on all of the will of God that he expounded in the first 14 verses so that he can pray for his beloved saints. Now, in light of this great salvation that God has revealed, Having heard a good report from the church in Ephesus, Paul said, I continually give thanks to God for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, remember that thanksgiving is an important part of our prayers. So thanking God for our brothers and sisters is something that should be a part of our prayer. Now, Paul was intimately acquainted with the believers in Ephesus. You'll remember that he spent three years establishing and building up the church in that town. But now, well, now by this point, it had been five years since Paul had left the city of Ephesus. And in verse 16, he lifts his voice in thanksgiving because he heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all of the saints. So Paul was grateful to God. He was grateful that the church continued to demonstrate the signs of spiritual life. Think about that. The signs of true spiritual life. If you've ever visited the emergency room, which I have from time to time, you know that the first thing that they do after they take your insurance is they check for your vital signs, right? They check your blood pressure, they check your heart rate, your respiratory rate, and it is because these tests will help to reveal the true nature of your condition, the condition of your physical body. Well, here in verse 15, Paul points out two essential tests that represent the spiritual condition of the body of Christ there in the city of Ephesus. You see, these believers remained steadfast in the faith, and they were sincere in love. They displayed a sincere love for all the saints. Two vital signs for the church, sincerity of faith, sincerity of love. Paul said, for this reason, going back and looking at everything that I've said so far, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all of the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, these two vital signs of faith and love are the same signs of life that Paul recognized in the churches of Colossae and also in the church of Thessalonica. In Colossians 1, verse 3, Paul said, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all of the saints because of the hope 
laid up for you in heaven. Now, although these Ephesians lived in a very hostile environment where Christianity was marginalized and believers endured difficult persecution, the Ephesians were holding on. They were holding on to their faith in the Lord Jesus, and they were walking in love with one another. In the ESV commentary, Benjamin Merkel writes this. He said, their faith was not simply an intellectual affirmation of Christian belief about Jesus, but was more importantly an intimate union with Jesus, who provided them with grace and strength to survive and thrive in the world. My friends, the testimony of these Ephesian believers helps us to understand the strength and the durability of true saving faith, especially in an atmosphere of growing opposition. You see, despite the religious and economic pressures that these Ephesians faced, they remained steadfast. They held fast to Christ. And like these faithful believers, we too can trust the Lord and we can rest in him when the world around us becomes more and more resistant to the gospel and even more oppressive towards those who believe, we can hold fast. Although the Ephesians' faith was tested, it remained steadfast, strong. And in his commentary, Kent Hughes gives us an illustration of the boldness of faith that enabled these Ephesian believers to live their lives for the glory of God in the face of opposition. Here's what he said. He said, the Ephesians believed that, that Christ would take care of them through thick and thin. Their faith was not like the man who attempted to cross the frozen St. Lawrence River in Canada, unsure of whether the ice would hold him. The man first tested that ice by laying his hand upon it. And then he got down on his knees and he gingerly began to make his way across the river on all fours. And when he got to the middle of the river, he began to tremble in fear. He heard a noise behind him and looking back to his horror, he saw a team of horses pulling a carriage down a road that led to the river. And when the carriage reached the river, the horses didn't stop. They bolted right out onto the ice and passed the man who was crouched down on all fours. If only the man had known how firm the ice really was, he would have been much more bold in crossing it. Well, friends, the scripture that we read in all of our devotions consistently bears testimony to the strength and to the durability of true saving faith. In Hebrews 11, 11, by faith, Sarah received the power to conceive when she was 90. When she was 90. Hebrews eleven seventeen by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Hebrews eleven twenty seven by faith, Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. Hebrews eleven twenty nine by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. 
So regardless of where the Lord leads you in your journey of faith, he will graciously provide all of the necessary resources to carry you all the way home. Well, having confirmed the spiritual vitality of the believers in Ephesus, Paul now transitions in his prayer from thanksgiving for his beloved brothers and sisters to intercession on their behalf. Very often when we set our hearts to pray, we come into our prayer closets with a laundry list of physical needs. We pray for Aunt Susie's toes, for mom's diabetes. And now, well, that's not bad. But when we look at Paul's prayer, Paul is more concerned, it seems, with the spiritual well-being of the saints than their physical well-being. We see that in this particular prayer here in the book of Ephesians. If I was to give a title to Paul's intercession on behalf of these believers, I would call it a prayer for spiritual enlightenment. A prayer for spiritual enlightenment. And folks, because Paul is writing to believers, we understand that their spiritual eyes have already been opened Through the preaching of the gospel, they have been brought from death to light, from blindness to sight. God had already done that. Remember in verse 13, Paul said, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. These people were truly born again. But like newborn babies, they possessed real spiritual life, but they were not yet what they would eventually become. If they remained healthy, they would surely grow in stature. They would grow in maturity. They needed the milk of God's word to continue to grow, but they did already have life. And so it is with you, and so it is with me. When we are born of God, we are justified. We are set apart. We have the seal of God's Spirit in us. But we still need to grow in grace. We still need to grow in our understanding, our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is with that in mind that Paul said this. He said in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. This is a wonderful prayer, a wonderful prayer that we should pray for one another. Oh, Lord, as we go through the, um, the church directory, so oftentimes we make that a prayer list, and we pray, oh, God, give them, give them wisdom, give them understanding in the revelation of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful way to pray through our church directory. Now, surely you remember In the Old Testament, when the fathers and the prophets addressed God, they called him what? They called him the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's how they addressed God. He was the God of the covenant that was established with Abraham, the covenant that was handed down from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob. Well, here in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, we address God as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are in a new covenant, a covenant of grace, a covenant of redemption that has been sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ. 
When Paul prays to God, he prays to God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's praying to the God of our salvation, the Son of God, in whose blood the new covenant has been sealed. And Paul calls him, he calls him the Father of glory, the Father of glory. When we hear that word glory, what do we think of? What do we think of? Well, we think of the sum total of all of the excellencies, all of the perfections, all of the attributes of the triune God. When we address God as the God of glory, we address him who is the source, the embodiment of of all glory. With this in mind, when we pray to the God of glory, we approach God in prayer with great reverence, with great awe. We never speak carelessly or casually in the way that we might speak to one another. We covered this on Wednesday night with the children, didn't we, Al? He said, when we approach God, we're studying the names of God on Wednesday night. And in those names, we see evidence of God's glory, the self-existent God, Jehovah. So when we know who he is, we can't approach him casually. We approach him with reverence and awe. Well, here's what Paul does. And then in verse 17, Paul prays, that God would give the Ephesian believers the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Although it's possible to take the word spirit, the spirit of wisdom here, as a reference to the human disposition, it truly is best to interpret this as a reference to the Holy Spirit who imparts wisdom and revelation to man. Remember this from Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, speaking of Christ, And how does he speak about the spirit of God? He is the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So when we ask, when we pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation, we're asking that the spirit of God would open our eyes to see the glory of God in Christ. Well, here in Ephesians 1, Paul specifically prays that the Holy Spirit, with whom these believers have been sealed, would supply them with wisdom, with revelation in the knowledge of God. We can study all kinds of things throughout our lifetime. Sciences that are amazing, physics, all kinds of things, mathematics. We can study all of these glorious things, but there is nothing. There is nothing more magnificent than the knowledge of God. Well, here in verse 17, the specific word that Paul uses for knowledge is a very strong, a very powerful word. Paul's not describing a casual or passing acquaintance. He's not referring to a superficial knowledge, but rather an intimate, exact, and profound knowledge that is gained from a thorough participation with the object that is to be known. This is a hands-on participation. This is a knowledge that comes from being with or communing with God. For example, there are a lot of people who could say that they know me. Some of them have been friends of mine for more than 50 years, but they don't know me like Sharon does. 
She has seen me at my best. She has seen me at my worst. And every place in between. And the only one who knows me better than she does is Jesus. Because he knows my heart. Well, the kind of intimate knowledge, this kind of intimate knowledge that Paul is speaking of, the knowledge of God that he desires for these Ephesian believers is a thorough, it is a personal knowledge that comes from daily communion with God, daily fellowship with God. That's how we come to know him, and that's what he's praying for these Ephesian believers. Paul used the same word, it's epigenosis, he used the same word in his prayer for the believers in Philippi chapter 1 when he said this, he said, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment that, so that you may approve what is excellent and, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, that you may abound more and more with knowledge that is the knowledge that comes from a firsthand communion and fellowship with God. And so, friends, when we begin to walk in true Christian maturity, our love for one another arises out of our intimate communion with God. It is the sweet fruit that comes as we abide in Christ and allow His Word to abide in us. Then we will produce much fruit. Now, as we move into verses 18 to 23, we find three elements of spiritual enlightenment that explain and expand Paul's petition for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. What does he want them to know? Well, he wants them to know the hope of their calling. He wants them to know the riches of God's inheritance, and he wants them to know the greatness of of God's power toward them, the greatness of God's power toward them. In verse 18, Paul said, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, because God's word is unchanging, and all of the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. When Paul uses the word hope, he's referring to a future certainty and not some wishful thought. We don't merely entertain blissful thoughts of a desired future. No, we have the seal of God's Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. This isn't just a, a blissful wish that we desire these are the promises of God that are unchanging. We have the seal of God's Spirit. Now, Paul has already told us that there is a day coming in the fullness of time when God will unite all things together in Christ. That's a glorious day when he comes, when his judgments are finished and everything is bound up together in Christ, in a union with Christ. How wonderful that will be. And yet in the church, in the church even here and now, as imperfect as it may be, there is a union that we enjoy. 
We have all been brought together from different vantage points in life, from, from different economic backgrounds, from different educational backgrounds, but we have this one thing in common. Christ is Lord of all, Lord of all, and he is in all. That is our commonality, but we look for a day when this will be magnified, a day when all things in heaven and earth will be brought together under one head, even Christ. Writing to the believers in Rome, Paul said this, through him, through Christ, we have obtained, also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we presently stand and we rejoice in the hope, in hope of the glory of God. We have a hope. We have this abiding hope that one day we will dwell in the presence of God and all of his glory will be manifest before us. We have that great hope. That's not just some wishful thought. That's what the word of God has communicated to us. And through Christ, we have this assurance that we will be glorified, that we will stand in his presence. To the Galatians, Paul said, through the spirit of, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. The hope of righteousness. In hope, we are waiting for that glorious day when the Lord Jesus will rule and reign in the earth. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. But even now, we have a taste of that righteousness as we have been robed, the Bible says, in the righteousness of Christ. We have been given the gift of his righteousness by faith. Even now, we have a taste, a foretaste of that righteousness that is to come, and yet we don't know the fullness of that until we get there. But we have this hope, this wondrous hope of dwelling where there's no crime, where there's no death or decay, this glorious hope in Christ that is ours. In chapter 2, Paul will remind the Ephesians that before they heard and before they believed the gospel, they were separated from Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. He said, having no hope and without God in the world. Here is the way that Paul describes, and we'll look at this next week. How does Paul describe the unbelieving world? They have no hope. They have no hope. But now, but now through the preaching of the gospel, God has graciously opened their eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here in verse 18, Paul prays that they would know that they would know intimately, that they would see or perceive with clarity the glorious future to which they have been called. May God give us eyes to see the hope of our calling. Well, secondly, Paul prays that believers would comprehend the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And we spent some time on this last week. Well, let's refresh our memories. Friends, I believe that God wants us to know that the church, the church is his most treasured possession. His people are his glorious riches. As Peter said in his first epistle, but you, 
You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, my friends, God has chosen a people for himself from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, and he has predestined them to be his adopted children. He justified them, and he will glorify them. Listen to F.F. Bruce. He said this. He says, Paul prays here for his praise that his readers will appreciate the value which Christ, which God places on them, his plan to accomplish his eternal purpose through them as the first fruits of the reconciled universe of the future in order that they, their lives may be in keeping with the high calling and that they may accept in grateful humility the grace and glory thus lavished on them. You'd have to meditate on that for a little bit. Ken Hughes, when he's reading this verse, said this. He said, think about it. Think about it. God owns all of the heavens and countless worlds, but we are his treasure. The redeemed are worth more than the universe. We ought to be delirious with this truth, and Paul prays that we would apprehend it, that we would apprehend it with the eyes of our hearts. This is not to make us boastful. This makes us humble because the God of all creation has chosen us. He has redeemed us. He has placed his spirit in us. All of this is the work of God. We don't deserve any of this. So when he considers us his treasured possession, we can take no glory for this. We give all glory to God. And that's why when we stand before him, we will take our, 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 our crowns off and cast them at his feet because he is worthy of all worship, honor, and praise. Well, finally, in verse 19, Paul prays that the believers would perceive, that they would know, that they would comprehend the immeasurable greatness of his power, of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. There's a lot of strong words here that Paul uses, power and might, immeasurable greatness. Well, in these verses, Paul just piles up the superlatives in an attempt to describe the glorious power of God that is at work in the church the power of the Holy Spirit that regenerates those who are dead in sin, the power of God that justifies blatant sinners, the power of God that sanctifies and glorifies a people who God has chosen for himself. My friends, if I was to ask you, as I thought about this this week, if I was to ask you what is the greatest, what is the most majestic display of divine power in all of human history, what would you say? What is it? What is the most majestic display of God's power in all of human history? Resurrection. You might think of creation. I thought of creation. When God spoke and light came into existence. When he spoke and worlds came into existence. 
Or maybe we might think about the crossing of the Red Sea. That was certainly a powerful move of God. Maybe we might see the the destruction of the walls of Jericho. There are countless things in the Bible that we can see as, as, as representative of God's majestic power. If you think like I did, that it was creation, that his ultimate manifestation of power was creating the universe, then let me remind you of Paul's words, the words that he spoke to the church at Corinth when he said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here Paul equates the, 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 the powerful word of God, light be and light was, to the regeneration that he has brought about in our lives when he has brought us from death to life, from blindness to sight, when he has brought us into union with Christ by his own work. The same majestic power of God that illuminated the heavens on the first day of creation has shined in our hearts, bringing life and immortality to light through the gospel. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. <laughs> I have his series on Ephesians. He, he preached on Ephesians for 10 years, for 10 years. He said this. He said, the making of a Christian is the result of the manifestation of the might of God exerting himself, exerting itself. Have you realized that this is true of you? Do you realize that you are what you are because this eternal, infinite might of God has been working energetically in you, that it is still doing so, and it will continue to do so? His books are amazing. Friends, our finite minds, at least my finite mind, cannot begin to fathom the energy of God or the strength of his might. We can't begin to imagine the omnipotent power that is at work, even now, in all of those who believe. According to Paul, the power of God that is at work in us can only be compared to the power of God that was extended when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He said this, he said, the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. I don't even know I can comment on that. When we take the time to meditate on what Paul is saying here. We come away with such a deep appreciation of the saving work of God in our lives. You see, we didn't just walk an aisle. We didn't merely pray a prayer. We didn't submit to the ordinance of baptism as, oh, well, let's just get baptized. We didn't just join a church 
our salvation is a mighty expression of God's omnipotence. Think about the working of God in our salvation. The power of God that brought about our regeneration. Regeneration, our new birth that brought us from death to life. Think about the power of God that it took to do that. The energy of God that was exerted in our justification that is making us right with God. The ongoing exercise of God's influence in transforming us into the image of Christ throughout our entire life. He is actively, powerfully moving in us and through us to transform us. Not to mention the power that will be exerted when he glorifies us. My friends, the majestic power of God that was exerted to obtain our salvation can only be compared to the power that he demonstrated in the resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation of Christ. And those are the things that he mentions here. The resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and the exaltation of Christ, who is the head of all things. This is what he says is the power of God that is at work in you. In you. Jesus was resurrected for our justification. Even now, he abides at the right hand of the Father where he makes intercession for us. And finally, Paul says that he, God, put all things under his feet. God the Father put all things under the feet of his Son. This brings us to Psalm 110, where he put all things under his feet until he makes his enemy a footstool. But God the Father has put all things, all things. There's nothing that he hasn't put underneath of the feet of Christ. When a king would overcome another king, that king who, who triumphed would bring the, the ruined king and have him bow down before him, and he would put his feet on him as evidence of his triumph. But here, God the Father has put everything. Every name that is named, every dominion, every power, every authority has put it all underneath of Christ. And then, in his exalted state, he's given Christ to us, to the church, as the head of the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In his exalted position, the Lord is Lord over all. He's received a name that is above every name, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Jesus Christ has now been given to us, to the church, as a gift of God. And by the glorious working of his power, we who believe have been joined to Christ as a bride joined to Christ as a bride. We are made one with him, and in some unfathomable way, we have become the fullness of him who fills the universe with glory. Christ, who has no need of anything, who is perfect, has taken us to himself. And Paul says that we are the fullness of him who fills us 
who has filled all things. Somehow this union that we have with Christ has, has somehow filled him. Not that he needed anything, but it has been a blessing to him to have a bride that is in union with him for all of eternity. We will stand and worship him. Not because of anything we have done, but because of everything he has done. We could go through these verses for months and continue to peel parts of this onion. And I encourage you in your own study to do that. But in our prayer, we should be praying the prayer of spiritual enlightenment for one another and for ourselves that Paul has prayed here for these Ephesian believers. Lord, help us to know the hope of our calling. Some of you may be struggling with depression. Wintertime is a tough time for some people. This is more importantly that we should pray that God would reveal to us, show us the hope, the hope of our calling. That he would show us, that we would know the riches of God's inheritance in the saints and that we might know the greatness of his power toward us, that power that was revealed when he raised Christ from the dead, ascended him into heaven, and seated him at the right hand of the Father. Lord, we've only begun to scratch the surface of the wonder of this grand salvation that you have purchased through the blood of Christ. By your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.